Hello, friends, and welcome to the Friday Conversation. Hope everyone had a fantastic week. Here are some friends this week. Very excited to talk science fiction and a bunch of other stuff that Paramita will tell us about in a few seconds. <laughs> but uh, yeah, great. Good to be here. And uh, we'll go around the room. Uh, Haldane, will you start us off with an introduction? Tell us about yourself and a little bit about your work. Sure thing. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, so I'm uh, an experimental farmer who started writing science fiction in mm. the last few years. And my debut se uh, series, Our Vitreous Womb, which is a hard biological sci-fi, is, um, is in the SPFC, SPSFC uh, yes. 3 this year. <laughs> awesome. I want to find out more about that in a second, but Parmita? <laughs> Uh, hello, everyone. Uh, I'm a member of the Page Chewing Forum. I like to read books in a lot of genres. Fantasy, science fiction are some of my favorites. I have read uh, Our Vitreous Boom, and this got me thinking more generally about uh, hard science fiction, and in particular, science fiction that uses biologically the biology-themed world building. Hmm. So I proposed the idea to our host, Steve, and he said, let's do it. So. Uh, really excited to be here, and thank you. Of course, glad you, glad you uh, can make it. And Jose. Oh, hi, I'm Jose. I run, mismanage the <laughs> Jose's Amazing Worlds um, YouTube channel, and I can also be found uh, around the page chewing.com forums, and I'm very grateful and thankful to be here. Glad you can make it. And our friend Muriel is back. Glad you came back, Muriel. Glad you we didn't scare you away. <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Uh, so yes, I'm Muriel. I am a uh, SFF literature enthusiast and small booktuber. I can be found on the channel The Purple Bookworm with a Y in the worm. <laughs> and I've also read Mr. Doyle's Our Vitreous Womb Quartet, and I'm excited to talk about it. Awesome. So, uh, yeah. And Haldane's fine, by the way. I'm, I'm old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> right. <laughs> awesome. So I guess we can start off with, uh, Haldane, tell us about your books. Um, what, what inspired you to write after, uh, you know, what, what was the thing that sparked your, your decision to start? So I'm a bit of a doomer when it comes to industrial civilization. So there's you know, arguments that there's only so many resources to keep this party going. And it got me thinking, it's like, what would be the resources that a new civilization could rise, it could use to rise again in the future? And the only thing I could come up with mm. was biology. So that became the, the challenge is to build a world set in the, the distant future. It's about 30,000 years in the future that could plausibly be built entirely off biological technology. And um, it's set mostly in Australia and New Zealand, though I've got a few um, outlined installments that'll take it wider in the mm. world that I haven't written yet. But the, um, the first four novellas are kind of self-contained. Um, so, yeah, that's the, that's the big idea. <laughs> Could I ask the silly question of the evening? I, I need to get out of my chest and then yeah. the rest of the guests will make much more valuable contributions. <laughs> So I do apologize, I haven't read your books, but I'm very intrigued and I'm sort of quite um, like inspired by your background and how you put it to use in, in what you've written. But mm. is that your real name? Haldane B. Oh, no, no, no. I, 
I, I don't make any secret of it. So the, this is my pen name. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and I use it mostly to keep my fiction work separate oh, from my nice. non-fiction oh, work. That's heartbreaking stuff because it is such a cracking name. Like you have to be an author with that name, isn't it? And um, I was, uh, so, I was just about anyway. to say, Jose, that uh, <laughs> even though uh, he said that uh, Mr. Doyle said that Halloween is fine, I was going to request permission to please address him as Mr. Doyle. It just has that ring to it, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle and then yeah, Moriarty. Yeah, yeah, it's the, and, it's the, and the B, the B there as well, B Doyle, like, you know, you yes. sh- it's almost like you should be a, a, a crime noir writer <laughs> rather than biological sci-fi. By the way, I do apologize. Well, a lot of people don't know that Doyle wrote sci-fi and it was often biological sci-fi and he started writing Sherlock Holmes to pay the bills and it sold like crazy and he hated having to write more and more of them because he wanted to get back to his sci-fi. So hopefully the same thing doesn't happen to me. Or, or maybe, I don't know, if, if, if you get to be as, you know, best-selling as, as Arthur Conan Doyle was. But anyway... Um, <laughs> my, my only question to you so far, I w- it would be, and I think I ask this uh, about or to every single sort of more independent author, is like, why a series? I know, I know you mentioned your the first four books are self-contained, but I always think that as a as an aspiring author to to ask a new audience to engage with a series rather than standalones. So like, what what pushed you in that direction? Uh. There were a couple of considerations, and this was just the impression I got starting out as a writer, whether this is right or not, who knows. Um, So partly it was for self-publishing that if you have multiple titles, it often makes it easier to do your marketing. And I think it's just a matter of like taking up a little bit more digital Hmm. real estate that you've got like multiple thumbnails that'll pop up on Amazon potentially, and it makes you look like more of a real entity. Um, the other side of it was, as a writer starting out, it gave me more opportunity to practice mm. the whole production cycle. So I could go through drafting each of the four novellas and then go through and editing. And it was a really good exercise for me to improve, to, sorry, to improve those skills. Um, and I ended up bundling all four novellas as one mm. paperback novel. Um, so... I really love novellas. Um, when I find a good novella, I'm like I get halfway through a novel usually, and either I've got the idea that they're they're trying to build towards, or I have no idea what they're building towards. And either way, I'm not happy. Usually, by forty thousand words, I'm like you you could have done it by now. And when people do like uh, Elder Race with Adrian Tchaikovsky, I'm just so happy to see that done. And the reason why novellas are this kind of no man's land of length is just a historic quirk because of printing logistics. Like that many pages for a novel is just what the printing press spat out. So people started like continuing their stories for another 30,000 words when they didn't really need to all the time. And in the modern uh, ebook self-publishing world, there's no reason for people not to make a book any length that they want. Um, those historic kind of um, restrictions uh, are being thrown away to some degree. Hmm. No, no, I think it's really good. It's a very interesting point. And I actually quite, when I was checking out your books on Amazon, I was quite pleased to see them that they were actually novellas. So it's like, oh, okay, at least he's not asking me to embark on an 800 page per book sort of, because I find that off-putting when I'm approaching yep. 
an author that I don't know anything about. Yeah, that was the other consideration as well, that people, if they're signing up for two hours of reading rather than 20 hours of reading, they're more likely to give a new author a, a try. I think I think there's something to be said too about when you look into an author you're not familiar with and someone who's kind of just getting started, th- seeing that they're writing several books gives you the confidence that they'll finish what they're starting. So you you won't yeah. invest in a book and then it never be finished or it might be years. So, and that's you know, we're spoiled, but you know, to, to know that, that it'll be, that we'll, we will know that we'll get the next installment eventually. Mm. Um, and I look at what Tor is doing with shorter form fiction in series, mm. like the Murderbot Diaries is like the perfect example of that. They're, they're showing that there is a viability in that part of the market that is probably, it's probably the only part of the market that's under exploited <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> Relatively, <laughs> relatively. <laughs> it's still tough. It's still tough to get an audience. Yeah, I, bet. Uh, I, I would just add that uh, uh, I, I would be keen to hear what Muriel thought as well. But uh, when I read uh, Our Vitreous Womb, I read it as a story told in four parts. Uh, so the connecting thread is a particular individual's journey uh, through life. And the four novellas are... Um, how do I say it without spoiling? Uh, perspectives from certain characters in this individual's life, as well as perspectives into the world specific to these characters, which tie in to the way the society is and give us hints on where it might go. So that that was one reading of mine and. Another reading of mine, and uh, again, I don't know whether Mr. Doyle will uh, uh, agree with this one so much, but uh, because I like to read a lot of uh, general fiction where it's more about characters and characters' lives and characters' thinking and uh, so on and so forth, um, I also viewed it as a meditation on different forms of Mm. love uh, and on different forms of uh, familial or societal units. whether that is familial bonding or lack thereof, whether that is romantic partnership, slightly non-traditional, whether that is platonic friendship. So for me, it was both of those things. But it 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 read it can be read, of course, as uh, you know, you stop at book one and so on and so forth. But it it works as a sort of a book in four parts. Uh, Mr. Doyle, would you agree with that or do you think it is actually intended to be more episodic? And also, of course, please, uh, Muriel, thoughts as a reader. I'd I'd love to hear Muriel's thoughts on that first, though. Uh, Well, so, as as Mr. Doyle knows, I reviewed uh, his quartet. Um, And and indeed, one, one of the one of its characteristics that I noted was that it's each novella functions as a distinct entity, but all are kind of so they all spiral around this central character who is never the main character. Well, <laughs> he is the main character, but indirectly. Um, so I agree. It's it reads. To me, it read as the the future 
almost legend of, of this person, but told in such a way that mm. allows to delve into the world and the themes bound with those world-building concepts. And that I found a very interesting approach. And actually, I was going to ask if that's why you chose to have this through-line, indirect main character, which would then allow you to explore different facets of the future society you built through all these characters who impact in specific ways the main character who who never gets a point of view, not really. Like, we're never in his head, but we're mm. always coming uh, back towards him because it is his story. At, yeah. It's his story and it's the story of, of this future world at the same time. Mm. Uh, it, it's interesting. So I... When I first started writing the story, I tried to write it from that that through that threadline character's perspective. Um, his name's Oji, and um, he is very unlikable. He's very passive, um, and it just didn't work. And he doesn't know very much about what's going on in the world until the very end. And I got like eighty thousand words into writing this as just one novel from his perspective. And then suddenly he started figuring out what was going on. And I'm like, oh, my God, nobody's going to make it this far of him just bumbling around being kind of gross. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, I nearly put the whole series aside um, thinking I'd bitten off more than I could chew. And um, the only reason I came up with this other structure, this weird structure, is I got really sick and I was having a mm. fever dream. So always, if you're a creative person, try and use your altered states and I've, I've since found that whenever I get sick and I'm laying there like tossing and turning, that's the perfect time to come up with really interesting ideas. So I never rest. I never rest. I'm, even when I'm drafting, I'll think of an idea. I'll read over the outline right before I go to bed and I'll get like eight hours of subconscious machinations about the story and wake up ready to draft at like four in the morning. But um, yeah, that way of flipping around the story I realized that all the other characters like had a more interesting perspective into that world than this thread character who was kind of kept in the dark for most of it, um, which is part of the world building. So yeah, that, that was where that came from. And it's funny you mention it. I've only just realized it now. It's almost like the way the gospels are put together. Like it's, it's the same story, but it's never oh, from yeah. Jesus's perspective. It's other people around him wrote their account of the story and bits of it overlapped in places. Not that I'm comparing my work to that, but I'm, like I can't think of other fiction that uses this structure of a, a thread character that ties it all together, but doesn't actually get their own POV. No, but what I find interesting though, is that he, he in a way though, and, and that's why he's still kind of, from a character perspective, at least he's fundamental to the story because I, I mean, Try not to spoil anything, but he does pull the reader forward <laughs> since he's very directly concerned by the prologue. And I, well, I, I do want to, yeah. I do want to underline the prologue because I do think it's excellent because it's very yeah. weird. Oh. Well, I mean, it's mysterious. Well, yeah. I mean, good. We uh, for me in this case, it's a compliment. It's like weird, mysterious because it's very. You're lacking a lot of context and information about the world and so you're introduced to these terms and you're like what i, I don't think it's spoiling because it's literally the prologue he says i'm the last true human yeah and you're like what what does that mean but then you you, 
<laughs> it takes a while for you to actually encounter this character, and then you kind of realize, but he's he's the main character and he's not at the same time. So I think that, in that sense, it was a very, uh, it's a it's a different sort of choice. Uh, I think it's one that is is very well executed in in the quartet. So I guess the follow up would be what is what makes a good prologue. That's makes me a want really to read the book. Question. Yeah. Yeah. Really hooks you in. Yeah. Sparks um, deep curiosity, I, 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 engagement. I, I, it's like, oh, I I must know what is this about. <laughs> I I think I was a little bit inspired by the um. In, in writing excuses, they often go on about Indiana Jones being a great example of having a mini story at the beginning of the big story that tells you what the promises are of the big story. They, they're basically proof that the person writing it can take you on a little bit of a journey. And here's the bigger version of that if you want to stick around. Well, if I, I mean, I, I'm sorry to, to bring out this ginormous uh, name in fantasy, but the prologue for Game of Thrones is is right up there uh, with, with the best examples. Because so I I started watching the show before reading the books, but the, the prologue is essentially the same. That prologue had me going, must know the rest of the story now. <laughs> so so yeah, I agree with Parameter. It, uh, oh. a, a good prologue shows you. Well, to to Mr. Doyle's point. A good prologue kind of gives you a preview of well, the writing and the ability to construct a, a mini story, but then to Parameter's point, it just really sucks you in. Like, yes, I want to know what's going to happen. I want to know what this is about. Hmm. And my, my prologue, part of the reason I put it in was to shine a spotlight on OG. Because he doesn't mm, yeah. turn up for however many chapters. I'm pointing out this person's really important because he ties everything that comes together. What about you, Jose? What makes a good prologue? What, what's the kind of prologue that will keep you reading? Um, I don't know, because before my reincarnation, when I used to write, in my first novel, I wrote a prologue which was actually a scene that is late in the book so it's kind of like okay these characters or this character is doing this how did he get to that point and then it's almost like um most of the book is a flashback to that prologue i think you know i think you see a lot more you see that a lot more in movies maybe than in books but but i think that that works as a hook you know like the classic um, I don't know. I may be making this up, but Mission Impossible, when Tom Cruise is hanging off a cliff for dear life, and like uh, 24 hours earlier, and then you know you kickstart the the story that way. I think those work as well, um, in my opinion. It's uh, the, the expanse, right? It's the pr- it's the promise of the premise. You're, you're giving people a taste of where the story is taking them. Yeah, I mean, I, I like your you mentioned about Indiana Jones, and I think. Um, for those that are old enough to remember, the MacGyver TV series did a lot of that. You had a lot of mini stories at the beginning of the of the episode that they kind of serve. I mean, in that case, they kind of served more as like 
they gave you background on the character, but it also showed you, you know, the prior knowledge that he would then use later on in the episode. So it was kind of um, just so that at the crucial time when the, your main protagonist has to use a certain skill or a certain object, you've laid that foundation work before and it doesn't come as a surprise or a plot convenience later. I was uh, going to add a little bit of what I was thinking. Uh, so one, one another uh, element of a good prologue for me would be, and unfortunately this is why one of my most favorite series I cannot mention, King Killer, is whether that prologue resonates at the end, when mm. we reach the end. Was it justified mm. or was it just a hook? Because yeah. if the prologue has this sort of deeper meaning, whether one goes back to reread it, I mean, that is, I think, the ultimate triumph where you reach the epilogue, so to say. Let us say this is a traditional contract where you have the prologue and then the story and the epilogue. And then the epilogue immediately makes you go back to the prologue and you're like, oh, wow. Mm. I mean, that is perfect symmetry. So th that, uh, for me, one, yeah. and this also is an example of what Jose said, where uh, he mentioned in his fiction, he started the book with something that happens way later and then most of the initial part of the book is flashback. It is tremendously hard to do, but when it is done, it is majestic. So the example I was thinking of was uh, Donna Tartt's Secret History. It's, this is, that, that is the book. She will tell you in the first line what happened. And then it's, why did this happen? And it's all on the writing. So. I mean, there are yes. many, many ways to do it. But one thing I really liked about uh, Mr. Doyle's uh, series was that for me, when I reached the end of the fourth installment and the epilogue, there was this beautiful symmetry for me in the writing between the prologue and the epilogue. And that was just uh, uh, such a delightful thing to, uh, what do I say? From purely just a general reader perspective, wow. So that was a natural, spontaneous reaction for me. And some books do do that. And uh, I really love it uh, when they manage to pull that off. A lot of books don't, for example, again, I, I really, for example, I think the Eye of the World prologue is fantastic, fantastic. But the Eye of the World ending, so Eye of the World is Wheel of Time book one. I don't think it's as... <laughs> <laughs> but what, what, the example Muriel gave, it, it's a song of ice and fire, and then the prologue is part of that. And I, I've just been recently rereading this series, and A Game of Thrones, the epilogue is the other part of that, and it's fantastic. Oh, I mean, the yes. symmetry is just. Now that you say it, it just, it's just, just exploding in my mind. Oh my god, yes, you're right. <laughs> but I mean, okay, see, the ga A Game of Thrones, the, the prologue. That last chapter, perfect. Because, like, the, pr the prologue yeah. hooked me in, and then that last chapter, well, for me, it was actually the TV show, but again, it's, it's basically the same. I was like, again... Mira, you like dragons. Book, book two now, immediately, ASAP. <laughs> well, of course, but, I mean... But it, it's glorious, too. It's, just a glo it's such a glorious scene it and kind of, like, mind-blowing, because, uh, I don't know, I mean, dragons have been done in fantasy a lot. I'm sorry, a woman breastfeeding... Her dragons, that is uh, uh, that is memorable. It's an image. 
it's an, an image. image. Yes. So, so, but that's a very good point about the, the symmetry of the ice and the fire. I, I've never thought of it that way before. Yeah. But I wanted to um, I, uh, respond to the, um, the, the very ending um, of Our Future's Tomb. I do very much agree with that, actually, because uh, it wasn't a new favorite for me. I had some issues with the series. However, by the time I finished book four and without spoiling anything, yes, there is, a, there is something that, that makes it symmetrical to the prologue. And whatever the issues I had with the overarching story or themes, it, it had this very, very satisfying feeling of a completed cycle a completed story and it just feels very satisfying and and that's also what gave me this feeling of this is like a future legend in a way and there's something quite beautiful about that yeah yes the, the, the cycle I, I had a general <laughs> oh no after you parameter sorry no 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 i just met i just wanted to uh, agree with Muriel's point about the cyclical aspect. Yes. So I love that in prologues as well, like symmetry, yes, but also cyclical. So you go up to the end and then you go back at the beginning and it works and it clicks. And that's, that's something that I love in fiction as well. I loved it in uh, Our Witcher's Womb as well. Please go on. Yeah. Uh, no, I had a, a, que a, a question if you want to pivot to hard sci-fi. And I would actually argue that dragons in fantasy are more realistic than faster than light travel in most sci-fi. Oh, it can yes. be. Yeah. Like it would, it would be more plausible to have something a real live dragon than it would be to have a spaceship that Especially travels a faster than the speed dragon, of light. Right? If it's a if it's a tetrapod, mm -hmm. then yes, definitely. <laughs> um. Even if you want fire coming out of its mouth, it's like, yeah, you can, you can like, what? jiggle what? around some... I mean, there are... There's ways you, and you means. Know the I mean, the Chronicles <laughs> of Pan, they are science fictional dragons, right? So, so, mm. so mm. Uh, Anne McCaffrey did kind of try and give a, a plausible uh, <laughs> explanation for that kind of animal. And, like, she has... And, and the dragons on Pan aren't the only hexapods... You are told about other um, native animal life forms that have six limbs and that might have shared a common ancestor with the, the fire lizards and then the dragons. And I mean, I, I've re I read them a, a while ago and uh, I didn't look that, too, I didn't like look that deeply <laughs> into the actual science. Uh, but at least it was an attempt. Like it was, it was a genuine attempt at, at making that work from a, a more uh, quote-unquote evidence-based approach yeah, yeah so yeah <laughs> but but we, we wanted to talk generally about biology wow. and science fiction and particularly about the hard oh, soft dear. kind of access that it's yeah. used <laughs> who has thought uh, well, one one to start with would be um as the xenogenesis series yeah mm. which get gets a, a get out of jail free card because it's alien biology is the basis of everything so it's just space tentacle magic like it can do whatever well, it needs I mean, to okay, do in, in, no well it's a bit more than that though i mean because what's interesting with that is the whole two and a half well i guess it's presented as three reproductive categories 
I personally think it's more two and more like two and a half. Okay, whatever. And she, <laughs> uh, Butler did try and like give an explanation for like there's an organelle that was incorporated, kind of like a, a, a mitochondrion or something, and then mm. this allows the the mix and matching of genes from males and females. Uh, the way I put it in my review, which wasn't that long ago, was like this is what this is how they do meiotic crossing over it seems a bit convoluted from a natural selection point of view i guess but at least again there wasn't there was an attempt i suppose and and she does try to like yeah uh make the way the aliens function with like communication and uh mood modification using neurochemistry and pheromones and you use pheromones in your series, I might add. And I'm, I'm not, I'm not always a big fan of that because I, I feel like there's just, I feel like uh, people make a lot of pheromones and it's not actually justified. But eh. um, <laughs> so I don't know. I, don't, I think but, Butler, her aliens are, are, are decent in that respect for someone I yeah, don't think she had, gets she gets yeah, high marks yeah, for me. And I don't think she had training in biology, so. Uh, mm. I, I also am very I, uh, I, I nitpick but, a lot with these things, so my my bar is always quite high. But no, no, she did she, she did pretty pretty well with that. What um, about Tchaikovsky? Because he's probably one of the biggest, most consistently biological themed authors out there. Parameter, you want to go first? Um, not uh, we we can uh sort of yeah. I mean, this ties into Tchaikovsky as well. But I was thinking of asking. Uh, all the pan- panelists before we move into Tchaikovsky, uh, when we think about uh, hard science fiction, when we think about uh, alien species, how do you perceive that and does that figure into your uh, rating or enjoyment of a no- or for a novel or a series? Uh, for example, Steve, I know you have been reading The Expanse. Uh, Jose, I know you've been reading The Sun Eater. So there, there have been lots of... Um, Lots of series that uh, different people on this panel have been reading. And uh, I, I would very much be interested, uh, Muriel, as she said, she has been reading the Xenogenesis, but she's also read other, many, many other hard science fiction uh, things, like Children of Time. Uh, I think on the evolutionary biology front, it would work. Uh, Dune on the ecology front, it would work, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so I just wanted to ask, when you are reading, does do, do those uh considerations of whether something is scientifically accurate especially if it's something which is the world building is taking off on something from the natural sciences like physics or biology uh does that account into your reading or on or contrary which shane mentioned faster of light travel which i cannot stand <laughs> uh, if something like that does happen but it is explained does it break immersion do you give it a pass uh, just thoughts on that from everyone, please. What's that? Go ahead. <laughs> Take this on. I'll, I'll, I'll pass. Sorry, I just that uh, my my mind has gone somewhere else because um, I have to admit I went to get my Kindle to buy book one uh, <laughs> in the series. So um, I'm 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 after listening to you guys, I I couldn't help myself. So. It's gonna be my is is yeah. second book of my TBR. Yeah. Um, my, my only question. Well, I got two questions, but one was gonna be because I, I got a little bit concerned by the turn that the conversation took. It's like, 
how much biology do I need to know in order to read these books or enjoy the books? Jose, you're fine. I last studied biology in 10th grade. You'll get, I mean, I guess there's some little things that you, you depreciate differently with like more uh, scientific knowledge, but it's not, it's not a necessary condition. No. Hmm. I didn't read it at all through the lens until uh, other reviews uh, started pointing it out to me. For me, it's mainly this cool um, society, very weird society, constructed on biological principles, but the biology is not front and center. For me, it's more about the character relationships and how those function in this sort of society. That's That was my reading of the series. And I would add, like, on a, them on a thematic front, it's it's more perhaps how some some concepts are applied to the the building of the world like artificial selection but but beyond that no i you should be fine hmm. well because that was the best be... comp uh, i think is sorry no i was, I was gonna say uh, that that was gonna be my next question to mr doyle like so no you said you started the series as some sort of like what if like a, a plausible future scenario where we run out of natural resources and what would that potential plausible future society look like but i just wanted to learn a bit more about your creative process like did you start with the idea and then how did the characters of the themes come about um did they grow organically or did you have any ideas that you wanted to present in the books already when you started writing or did they just grow up naturally as the event as the writing took you in a certain direction yeah um that's a really good question so i am an ideas first kind of writer like i and i love reading books that are explore an idea but i was very aware that if the characters aren't compelling then you might as well just write a textbook like you might as well write a, a blog post so um the whole the whole appeal of long-form literary fiction is that interiority that you can get inside someone's head and you can get a glimpse of a completely different way of living a life. So, yeah, I, I, I tried to do that. I, I'll, I'll leave it to my readers to, to say whether I succeeded or not in, in making the characterization stand up on its own. Um, and in terms of my process, um, one thing I do that's maybe a bit unusual is... I see character as mostly being expressed on the page through relationships. So when I come up with a, a storyline, I'll actually make a huge table of all of the major characters. And in each square, I think about what one character thinks about the other character and how that changes throughout the plot. And I try and set up interesting contrasts within the characters that way so that they... I, I think um, Martin does this with um, Game of Thrones. Basically, he builds up these really interesting, distinct characters. And all he has to do is put a different combination of them in a room and mm. let them go. And the scene kind of writes itself. And I, I think I tried to set things up a, in a similar way. Um, though I do discovery write my minor characters. Um, they're really just a very rough sketch and when I get to that part of the plot a door opens and they walk in and some of them were like strangely fully formed there's that experience you hear some writers talk about that they're like I don't know where this person came from they were just there 
I, I just looked in my mind and they, they just marched out. I, th I think that's the magic um, of writing. I think anyone that has ever written a longer piece of work, no matter how much you've planned it out, like when I used to write, like I knew where I started and I knew where I ended. I, sometimes I didn't know how I was going to get there. And then your own mm. writing takes you places that you didn't mm. expect. Um, I'm, I'm sure you found that as well. Or I, if, absolutely. If you could give yeah. an example, please. Oh, of, of a character that came out of nowhere? Character, any particular scene that you remember as being you know, particularly outstanding in your mind? So the the one that always stands out is um, there's a nun, a, a, a rubber clad <laughs> nun, yeah. in the first book called Sister Janae, and she's kind of how do you describe her? Kind she's a little bit pervy, she, she's a little bit hot under the collar. <laughs> I'm I'm going to mute myself so I don't give away spoilers with reaction. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I mean, those really minor characters that only have, you know, maybe a few hundred words in the whole story, they really have to stand out if they're going to have a chance of not just being part of the furniture. And I, I think that's really, really why I like Discovery writing them, because I think they come across as uh, more alive, whereas the bigger characters have to carry the plot. So you have to be a little bit more careful about how you move them from step to step. No. Uh, no, no, I understand that. And is that where you may have more fun with because you've only got like a very minor, I, I don't know, like a minor character. So you can be weird about it. You can you can have fun with that. I'm going to have a, a pervy nun. Why not? <laughs> you know, just... Uh... <laughs> and, and if it all goes horribly wrong, you might have to rewrite like one or two chapters. <laughs> it's not the end of the world. Whereas if you stuff up a main character, which I have done, um, book four... I got to editing it and I was kind of happy with it. And then I started editing it and I'm just like, there's, there's something missing that the heart is not there. And I sat, I like, you know, shed a tear and stared out the window and it's like, no, I'm just going to have to rewrite the whole thing. And I did, I rewrote it from scratch. Wow. But I mean, with a novella, it's 40,000 words. And I, I often think like if a draft isn't more than 70% to where it needs to be, it's like plastic surgery. Like if you move too many things around, eventually it just doesn't look like a face anymore. Like it starts becoming uncanny valley. <laughs> and I'm, I'm a big believer in achieving cohesion in the energy of the writing. And that's one reason why I really like novellas that I can sit down and in a month I'll get the whole thing done. And I'm in the same approximate headspace for the whole thing. Whereas for bigger works, you've got to kind of break it up into pieces and I don't know. I think you're, you're a different person at different times and you can only write a particular book at a particular time in your life. <coughs> I, I, I can see that. That's so I, beautifully said. Well, like, like the first book in the series, I look at it now and I'm like, oh, it's, it's a little bit less polished. It's a little bit more immature but the character in that story is young and naive and immature so it's like okay i kind of got away with that <laughs> as i tell myself but I, if i went back like if i wanted to write a story as if i was a 10 year old i would do a better job being authentic if i was 10 years old mm. if i'd saved some writing from that time in my life and as a 40 year old trying to replicate that 
it's always going to be one step removed. And I, I feel that about every time I sit down to write something. It's like, it's, this is like a little time capsule of who I was on that day. And it's not about it being better or worse. It's just about it being of that moment. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, pardon me to your question, uh, just to uh, reverse a little bit. Um, I don't really mind when there's... Too, I don't, it doesn't bother me when the science is inaccurate. If it's not just, I kind of just think they're creating their own world and I'm just along for the ride. So it doesn't really bother me too much. Um, it just, I just kind of, you know, you um, leave that at the door and just enjoy the story for what it is. So, it, Is it a little bit like a hard magic system that like, okay, I've got the rules now. Mm. Let's see what we can do with them. But if they start breaking the rules too often, then you have to like, oh, okay, so no, that that's a new thing that I have to accept. And the more often you do that, the more mm. likely you are to be thrown out of the suspension. Yeah, once the rules are set, then I expect them to be followed. <laughs> but but uh, before it, you know, what's just give me the rules of the of the world that we're we're going into, and I'll just let's go. There's a great mm. quote from a physicist, um, allow us one miracle and we'll mm. explain the rest. I, I think it was a real physicist it said it about the Big Bang. So, like, we have no idea how the Big Bang happened. Like, it was God or a dragon or, you know, someone rolled a D20. <laughs> um, <laughs> but after that, everything has to follow rules. And I think there's a similar thing in all sorts of fiction. I mean, even soft forms of sci-fi and fantasy at least there has to be a feel that's consistent. Like you, you're relying on kind of subconscious, like intuition elements being concordant. And if you break that promise to the reader, you mm. risk losing them even for soft sci-fi mm. and fantasy. Shall I go? Do you want me to answer Power Eater? Yes. <laughs> yes, please. Okay. So I, I do very much get bothered. Um, <laughs> Well, it kind of de- it kind of depends, but generally, I am primarily an ideas-driven reader, uh, or and beyond that, a theming and world-building and concepts-driven reader. Uh, that's uh, why I adore science fiction and fantasy because that avenue of speculation allows to explore so many creative ideas, concepts, etc. And then with science fiction specifically, well, since it is science fiction ideally i i hope to encounter a story that builds off of some sort of of premise rooted in in actual empirical knowledge scientific knowledge i can be flexible with this if ultimately the the themes being developed from that are very thought-provoking, moving, inspiring, and then ideally if the plot follows suit and the characters are also interesting, engaging, even if not necessarily relatable. I I have a very, very hard time relating characters generally, so it's less important for me. (laughs) But but I do I do need something ideally to be to be based in, in actual yeah, data or current levels of, of scientific understanding i can i can give a pass to all the works 
kind of it kind of depends when they were written and like okay they didn't actually know about this like uh, a, a science fiction novel I really like which I think holds up quite well is H.G. Uh, Wells' The War of the Worlds hmm. and he actually had a lot of um, forward thinking ideas for the time and of course some of them didn't hold up but it was written at the end of the 19th century <laughs> so, so 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 that kind of idea but then you'll have some novels which are touted as being very hard science fiction and then you kind of go through them and so far as you're able to actually analyze these things and you're like you sure about that <laughs> uh unfortunately <laughs> I, I had i had a a recent experience uh in that area uh, and I was I was very upset because well not only were the ideas a bit uh, ludicrous but nothing else about the story worked either so it was just adding insult to injury for me and generally yeah I I mean I nitpick world building and the application of concepts and the themes developed from set concepts but that's also because I enjoy doing it like that's that gets me uh, happily nerding over a, a a science fiction or fancy novel but, but with science fiction given the labeling yeah I, I do expect ideally some some sort of real world idea being developed i'm i i, I recognize that you can have science fiction that is more about entertainment and you're just gonna throw in cool science ideas because they sound cool and it's like the flashbang of it all uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just less interested in that overall. I, I want to think about what I read hmm. and ideally feel and think about what I read. So yes, no, it, it very much do <laughs> does matter to me. But but that's also because I am a bit of a science nerd outside hmm. of that. As, so, as, a, yeah. as, as, as a possible counterexample, didn't you really enjoy the Kaiju Preservation Society? Yes, but that... Where does that well, fall on? Is it pure yes, fun or well, yes, was it actually, actually that, built on ideas? So it's obviously there are always exceptions. Generally, I prefer what what I like to call ideas-driven science fiction. I've... And Parameter knows this. We've had a very long conversation about this. I am uh, increasingly disinclined to even use the soft or softer and harder science fiction dichotomy because I have issues with it. Uh, I'd rather go with like ideas driven versus entertainment driven. And there are exceptions to that. No, I, I did enjoy the Kaiju Preservation Society and that's just, that's just fun. Mm. It, was, it, was, it was very good fun. Uh, and, and so I, I loved it on, on those terms, but yeah, it's an exception for me. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, for me personally, I'm not going to catch mistakes in world building. Very rarely will I catch mistakes in world building, unless it's faster than lifetime travel, and then, then I will just scream. <laughs> but other than that, I'm very, very, uh, I, I'm very much uh, more on the uh, with Steve, where you know the author is taking me for a ride, and ah, okay, it's their world, and it's fine. Let's just go with it. But the only thing is that the ride has to be committed to, and the ride has to be. Uh, have at least the intent of good storytelling. Whether it ultimately delivers or not is a matter of personal opinion. But I do not like people info dumping, people, you know, showing off their knowledge. Oh, look, we, okay, fine. I mean, I can Google too. It's, 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 that, that part is very, 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 very uh, immersion breaking. And one another thing uh, which tends to be a bit immersion breaking for me, specifically in this uh, space opera genre. 
so i won't mention the series it was very beautifully written for me i really enjoyed what i read but uh, in certain spaces in certain places we were going to this uh, it, it's a far future setup but we are going to these places which resemble the roman colosseum and in the colosseum these people are having well they're not sword fights but they're like laser fights and i was like i don't get this i i, I this is this is breaking emotion for me like i understand why it's cool and why it's uh, probably interesting to read about but uh, no i mean th- that that level of where it becomes like totally you, this is a cool battle happening but i i don't get why why we are using these elements that breaks emotion for me that's the stage at which i stop enjoying it and the other one is yeah which i already mentioned like heavy info dump where i'm just like just just uh, to quote that scene from game of thrones just give me something for the pain and let me <laughs> well i mean okay to be fair i i i might be a bit more lenient towards info dumping than you perhaps but and, and to, to mr doyle's point i don't want if i want to read science non-fiction I'll go and grab a a a pop science book or even a, a more academic book, right? I don't I don't read fiction to get non-fiction either. So I still need a story to to carry the emotions mm. and the ideas forward. But but with science fiction I just expect that to to build off of at least some sort of of, you know, science grounded idea, but you can't lose sight of of the heart and soul of the medium and or art form you're working with which is storytelling either I, it's still very important to me and my yeah. my favorite science fiction books are still very much so um intellectually and emotionally and sometimes even spiritually impactful stories it just got me thinking like we're going on about biology in science fiction are there other branches of science that are underrepresented like is there a geology based <laughs> science fiction story out there uh. i i actually think i know of a self published one um the scribe's descent it, it features a lot of geology in it i haven't read it myself but i i have been in contact with the guy who made it yeah i mean we don't <laughs> think about it until we start to classify but one thing which i uh, i read Mr. Dahl, in one of your interviews, you said that one of the challenges with uh, biology-based world building is that biology tends to be biological processes tend to be slow, and yes. it it it's not something that integrates well with uh, well. Oh, I shouldn't use those terms. It, it's not something which is easy to integrate well without putting a lot of thought into it. So I I meant to ask this. that you on one hand you chose a novella format which you explained uh, just a bit before what your motivations for and on the other hand you chose a particular element of world building which is very very difficult to uh integrate into fiction even in long form fiction even in novel uh, even in novel format how did you marry these two together was it uh, a very organic process was it through draft or uh, how did that come about That's actually a really good question and I I'm not sure I remember how I actually tackled it. I I will I will bring up as a counterexample of a way that you can do it in Children of Time. You had the two parallel 
storylines and one of them was experiencing time dilation because they were jumping all over the galaxy and that mm. allowed the spiders to basically catch up in their evolution over you know yes. millions of years though even does that work oh, it depends on how fast you're traveling i guess um, now that i think about it that probably doesn't line up either but anyway we'll give them a pass we'll give them a pass um but i mean We've all seen the the movie, the Hollywood, where, you know, someone gets injected with a gene and within five minutes they've transformed into some mutated monster. And it's like, that, that's, that's, that's a little bit, bit flashy, like slow it down a little bit. Um, I mean, you could have the creeping dread of a slow transformation too. Like there's so much psychological perspective of like slow, that body horror of slowly transforming. Like why do it in five minutes just so you can chase people around? Um, so with me, I think it was more about finding key moments that illustrate the processes that helped build this society. So um, not it's a minor spoiler, but in the third book, we have an example of how the human um, selective breeding and transgenesis is being done in a very low-tech world. Like they don't have computers, they don't have um, genome analysis labs and all this kind of stuff. They just have biology in their hands and um yeah we we see how they actually take genetic material from all sorts of species and transfer it into human sperm and that's actually based on a real technique that uh labs have found that uh when you put animal sperm in the right conditions um which aren't very complicated you can expose them to naked dna that you extract from anything else which is like a high uh, it's a primary school experiment you can extract DNA just using yeah. detergent and you end up with this kind of slime um, and you will end up with the DNA being taken up by the sperm and then that can be passed into the next generation of that organism. And this happens naturally. Um, as a background, if you have like a viral infection mm. in the testes at the time, you can end up with viral DNA getting into the next human being that's produced from those sperm. Um, so why not do that on a civilizational scale and end up with all sorts of random new transgenesis to, to go sifting through for, for things that are useful? What the fuck do primary kids do in Australia? Like, what? what? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was a very strange kid. So I was running around, like, catching blue ring doctor pie and, and mantis shrimps and snakes. All the stuff that yes. Adrian Tchaikovsky dreamed about doing. I actually did when I was a kid. I did some of it, to be fair. He did, I think he, he made friends with spiders, <laughs> as I recall in an interview. Yes, 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 yeah. I, jumping spiders. I, I had, like, pet jumping spiders that I used to, like, uh, watch them do their little dances and stuff. So, yeah, I, I'm a bit of an oddity. It's not normal for Australian kids to do that. But, yeah, I, I was very blessed to have that opportunity. <laughs> and and now I'm an experimental farmer, so I'm, I'm doing this. Like, I'm breeding new species in my own lifetime. I don't know whether to be impressed or, or scared. It's well, I, I can confirm well, it, it that the whole DNA with detergent thing, though for my part, I did that in, I think it was secondary school the first time and the uni the second time. But uh, I, I can confirm it's, mm. it's quite easy to do, actually. But I think we did it with pineapple mm. or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Strawberries are really good. They're, they're great for extracting. But um, so <laughs> this is something that really inspired me. So. Um, wheat, like everyone knows what wheat is, right? You know, it's ubiquitous, everyone eats, almost everyone eats it. Um, so scientists went back to figure out where wheat oh, came from. 
and it's actually a it's a natural hybrid of three wild grasses that grow in the Middle East. And on their own, I mean, you, they're kind of edible, but not really. But if you have just the right order of hybridization, you end up something which is like 70% to modern wheat. And you can recreate that process in one, like it takes 10 years to do the breeding. They've, they've actually repro repro reproduced the process. And when you think about all of the consequences of having this one crop, you can build Babylon on the back of this one bit of biotechnology. And all it takes is a little bit of very, very low tech tinkering with, with species that are just laying around. And I, I wanted to explore this possibility. What if a civilization started doing this deliberately and specializing in all these different forms of domesticated organisms to create a completely different form of society. Well, I was just going to say, I think that's uh, one of the interesting bits about the, the science fictional aspect of our Vitreous Room's world building is that, uh, yeah, that, uh, it, it, it's probably uh, biology based science fiction. But what's interesting is that, I mean, you'll, what is there out there? A lot of it, I mean, a lot of, well, it's not, of the biology based sci science fiction I know, you have stuff to do with aliens, oftentimes, and that's more for like entertainment. You have stuff to do with like CRISPR-like gene editing and things like that, or maybe you know viral plagues and the like. Whereas in your series, and I'm going to assume that's uh, in large part because of your experience as an experimental farmer, you chose to go with artificial selection that just goes ham and, and it, it's a much slower form of technology but really go deep with that and show the ramifications of it and it, it's, it's usage in basically every aspect of one of your humanoid <laughs> civilization basically um, so I thought, I thought that was a very interesting choice and a, overall uh, a well executed choice sometimes Sometimes I'm not entirely sure if really you could do all of that with artificial selection, but admittedly you have more experience in uh, that domain than I do, and it, it is it is still fiction at the end of the day. Um, yeah, it, it's probably I did the calculations, and it's probably a timeline that I accelerated okay. a little bit. Yeah. Um, I I put it thirty thousand years in the future to set up some interesting conflicts with uh, other remnant forms of society around the world. Um, more realistically, hundred thousand years, but I mean that's a blink of an eye. Yes, in terms of evolution. <laughs> oh, tight, tight. Oh, quick, quickly, tiny, uh, tiny corollary uh, though. Since, because uh, you mentioned wheat, did you um, tweak biology a bit by applying the artificial selection you primarily do with plants to animals? Because I. <laughs> There's an ease with which you can do that with the plants because their genomes are a bit more flexible and like they can have several sets of chromosomes and stuff, which isn't necessarily yeah. applicable to animals. So th did you kind of take uh, a bit of a li creative license with that? Well, uh, yes and okay. no. So 
And I only learned this recently. So did you know that the chromosomes that we're used to seeing as human chromosomes are actually pretty unusual? So they're condensed chromosomes. Most other vertebrates and animals have uh, micro chromosomes. So birds, for oh, example, yeah. have lots and lots and lots of tiny little chromosomes. And this is one of the reasons why birds hybridize yes, and speciate more that's rapidly true. than mammals do. And yet the only other species that have these condensed chromosomes other than mammals are I think some amphibians and there was one other one. But yeah, basically birds and reptiles and fish, they hybridize okay, like crazy. Okay. And that's one of the main drivers of their speciation. Mammals do it as well. I mean, humans crossbred with Neanderthals if you want to call yep. them a yeah. separate species and Denisovans and probably other things that we haven't identified. Um, and they are still using that in my book yes, as well, too. The, the different lineages of humans regularly yep. hybridize with each other to create um, other variations. Uh, I was, uh... I'm, I'm, I'm really surprised, though. This is one thing I wanted to bring up with you guys that read it. Nobody's been offended by the mule wives in book three. So there are deliberately created hybrid race of two lineages of these new humans that are set up to be sterile. And they're basically used as, I guess you'd call them like, not they're not exactly sex slaves. Like nobody's a slave in this society. Re well, debatable. But their whole purpose for existing is to get married off to these yeah. remnant humans and, and serve as their wives and not get pregnant. Um, and nobody's I, brought it up. It's the one thing I thought people would go, oh my God, that is horrific. It's, it's, I, I view it as, I mean, if it's horrific, it is, I don't think the book in any way plays down for me when I read it, that it was horrific. What, uh, would have been off-putting for me would, uh, was if it would have been voyeuristic. It would, put, it would have been played mm. for entertainment in any form. And that mm. was never really done in any way for me. So this exists and if um, I, I thought of, because uh, as I, I must admit that my biology uh, uh, technical knowledge is not the best at all. And I'm also lazy to Google <laughs> stuff. So I primarily read it from the perspective of humanist science fiction of uh, of the author telling me that considering the society is this and these are the characters hence what so that's mm. how I usually uh, that's how I primarily read it so for me I thought that uh, even in 2500 years of evolution uh, oh, sorry of uh, human civilization if there are so many things so many regressive customs that we have not been able to get off uh, get rid of despite so much effort, it is not unthinkable to envisage that 30,000 years into the future, such remnants would exist, such traditions would exist. Mm. Uh, I, I, I mean, I view uh, humans as this bell curve, like most of us are within, let's say, one standard deviation. But there are outli outliers on both sides. And just as there can be unspeakably horrific people, they can also be uh, people who do good far beyond anyone's imagination. And I, I feel like human society meshes all of that together and somehow we trudge along. So that, that's, that was probably my reasoning for not finding it offensive in any way. I 
accepted it as an element of what is. Hmm. Mm. I mean, that's the other thing. Like, you, if you're if you're raised in a society where things are just the norm, it's it's not common for people to like get outraged. I mean, you go back thousands of years, and there was slavery everywhere. And almost nobody had the thought. It's like maybe this isn't a good idea, and we could have a different kind of society. That was that was a, a, a rare transition in human civilizations. So I think that's what I tried to play it as in the book. It was just you know that's that's I, I just turned up here as a kid, and everyone does things this way. That just must be the way the world is. Hmm. So f- for my part, um, oh sorry, what? sorry, primary did you? No, no, go ahead, Muriel. Uh, well, I was going to ask something to, to answer the question. No, I didn't find it offensive for a couple of reasons. Like, similar to what Paramita said. For one thing, the... Again, I don't think it's, it's, it's too big of a spoiler. There are human beings and there are kind of a, a future offshoot of human beings. Um, and, and a lot of the well-building centers on, on these other humans... And so to me, I, I didn't see them as, as full homo sapiences because they are not. So mm. it's a different sort of species, subspecies, uh, whichever, and, and a different civilization. And it's just so far into the future. It, well, like Paramita said, there was nothing gratuitous about it for one thing. And, and then for another... Even that specific element you mentioned, it, it's not part of a broader, horrifically oppressive... It's not a society I would want to live in. I wouldn't. <laughs> but it's not like, I don't know, violently patriarchal either. It's it's not really anything you can point to. It's its own thing. And it, it has lots of different castes doing different things. Uh, so in that sense, no, I, I didn't find it offensive. However, that kind of makes me think of, of two questions. Uh, the first would be, was that ever a concern for you, especially in in a contemporary world where people can be quick to judge creators for exploring certain ideas, regardless of whether or not they endorse them? Maybe they just want to do a thought experiment. Mm. Uh, because there are some... Yeah. One can read some heavy themes in your series, uh, like the 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 truth or not, or the impact, the ramifications of things like gen- genetic de- determinism, or, or like you know, a nature versus nurture and socialization. Yeah. Uh, the ethical concerns of just that amount of artificial selection, even though the, the entire society of your future humans is kind of built around that um now there's some there's some interesting thought-provoking concerns with like ethics um and and also maybe the, the very concept of a, an idealized society and i remember you you kind of presented your your series to me as a kind of utopian i'm like for me this would be dystopian I, more than anything else but you yeah, know it's it's utopia at a price that most people alive today would not be willing to pay. Fair enough. So, so yeah, Yeah. I I guess, was that ever something that 
you know, are nibbled at the back of your mind or like, mm, should I try to explore these ideas this way? Or people are going to like be too yeah. offended to engage uh, with an open mind with them? Or now nah, you're just like, I'm going to write what I want to write and that's that. I'm yeah. I'm. I have very very low conscientiousness as as a person, uh, but I was aware that I could potentially be stepping into a minefield with these topics, and, I mean the way. The culture and the internet works today with virality and things blowing up and like, people love yeah. to hate things collectively. Like it's one of the. It's one of the things that we love bonding over. It's just us as a species. And you occasionally see people manage to walk the line that they they throw something out there that's controversial enough that it gets people interested, but it isn't so horrific that it just gets them cancelled before anything happens. So, I don't know. And I hate doing my own like marketing and promotions, so maybe that was my kind of subconscious strategy to see if I could like lob it just into the right zone that everyone would be like, oh my God, this thing is, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, th that's the other thing too. Like there's so many aspects of this, which someone could find controversial that it's almost like, like Donald Trump. Like there's just so many things that people get worked up about him that nobody knows what to focus on. Like he just keeps moving from controversy to controversy. So maybe maybe that was kind of my theory too, that like you just put all of the ideas that you could possibly think uh, around this broader concept into one big story and then people don't know what to focus on. So, so, sounds to me <laughs> as if you're almost disappointed that people weren't upset about it. Uh, there's parts that I thought would be... Well, I mean, I could flip that around and ask Parameter and Burial, like, what was the most shocking part of the story? I think, like, a little one incident shouldn't be too much of a spoiler if anyone's thinking of picking it up. Parameter, you want to go first? Mm, my loss. Oh, no. <laughs> We'll see if she can Okay, I'll, I'll go. Uh, I, I didn't find it shocking as such. Uh, I, I found it thought-provoking, and, and that's a good thing. But it, it also hit... <laughs> it hit me somewhat because it kind of... It touches, uh, it touches upon personal life experience things. Uh... So again, yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's a very minor world-building spoiler, I guess. Uh, so the the society of um, future humans in your story are, are very collectivist. Uh, they're not they're not a hive mind as such, but they're, they're yeah they're very collectivist. They're, it's it's the group over the individual, a hundred percent. And death is not seen as something bad at all because ev every individual um, lives a life in service to, to the greater communal whole and there's also a very strong aversion to pain in this society whether physical or psychological pain and so every individual uh, in the society has as it's seen as a right as a birthright they carry a basically the equivalent of a cyanide bead 
I, I don't. I, was it cyanide? I can't remember. A B. It, it, it's a much yeah, more Yeah, it's a poison, right? It's, poison. it's a bead yeah. containing poison. Yeah. And so if they experience something painful that they just cannot deal with, uh, they can bite on this bead and commit suicide. Hmm. And I'll add to this. <laughs> but that's all, and, and it's also because the, there isn't any real advanced medicine. The society does not wa waste resources on helping its individuals medically, whether a physical illness or psychological pain. Like if someone is just so over, overwhelmed with grief or heartbreak, they're not really going to try to help this person at all. They're like, well, if you can't handle the pain, you can always kill yourself. Mm. Uh, so it's a very, it's an interesting idea because it's like, okay, uh, this is a choice the society has made. But it, it also kind of shows a weird lack of compassion. But at the same time, it's not, there is love in the society, there's friendship. But at the same time, there's so little value attached to individual life. That's like, nah, if you, if you can't deal with the pain, uh, well, we feel sorry for you. But hey, you can always kill yourself. So what's the problem? Uh, so yeah, that, that, that really, um, it, it makes you think and it, it's, it's a little, it was a, diff a bit difficult to engage with the times though, because I, I have personal experience with like mental illness and, and things like that. So I would say that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I lost my connection for a moment. Uh, my favorite character in, uh, the, my favorite book was actually book three and, uh, there was a there was a character there which who was very very dear to me and book three also explores some things like preserving knowledge and uh, you know doing uh, like maintaining preserving text by writing stuff down on ancient tablets lots lo lots of little nods to people who uh, are sentimental about such stuff but anyway there was also a very beautiful relationship so at the end of book three was the was the toughest for me to uh, accept. It was inevitable. I uh, accept mm. that, um, but it it was nevertheless a very poignant moment. And I have reread this uh, series actually twice. And the second time, even when I knew even more that it's coming, it was still very sad for me. So uh, it, it, that was probably my toughest moment uh, to uh, to sort of uh, spring up. Uh, springboard off from uh, Muriel's point. Uh, I wanted to ask Mr. Doyle this actually, uh, especially considering world building. How do we, uh, as reader, uh, how do you, as a reader and also as a writer, think about truly alien species? Because this aspect that Muriel said about the this uh, this particular uh, far future and. Uh, societal entity in your world they they have an element which is so so antithetical to my uh, sense of human survival like human beings they survive like you live at all costs you fight at all costs like life is mm. the most precious and here it is almost accepted uh, and it is not in a uh, what do I say in an aggressive or in a uh, self-righteous, uh, self-aggrandizing way at all, like, you know, for the greater mm. good, somebody said, or 
for collateral damage nothing like that it is a, it is an accepted mechanism in the society and that really felt truly alien to me how did you construct that as an author I'm not this probably partly comes from my own attitude to my own mortality and I don't I there's probably other people out there like this but um as a alienated and depressed teen I went through um the you know a fairly common phase where you contemplate like what's the point of life and do I want to keep doing this for another however many decades and I mean high school is pretty uninspiring slice of life <laughs> compared to all of the possibilities that are out there I've, I've since come around but uh, I reached a point where I was like well if you're going to throw it all away why not just take a chance why not live life recklessly and you know, if you're not worried about, you know, like you're playing a video game, you don't really care whether you you, you lose your lives in, in the, how many you've got, then like do all sorts of crazy things and see what happens, like have fun. And um, yeah, I, I think from that point on in my life, I've never felt possessive about my own mortality, my, my own existence. I'm, being, I'm, I'm very like with the farm like I, I march around and there's like there's brown snakes they're like the second most dangerous snake in the world and I see them on a regular basis and I'm just like hey guys if it's going to happen it's going to happen um, and with my end of life I'm very I've got a very black sense of humour about it my my plan that I keep telling people is that I want to make this little little pagoda on the top of a hill and put a lightning rod out the top hooked up to a chair and every time a storm's rolling in, I'll get my cane out and I'll walk up to that little thing and I'll sit in the chair and I'll never know when it's coming. It's not like, it's not quite suicide, but it's just opening the door to possibilities and an experience that not many people get to have. And now, <laughs> listeners, you know why we insist on referring to Mr. Doyle as Mr. Doyle. Thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, life life is is fun. But I mean, this is kind of a theme in the book too. That like most living organisms are dead ends. If you look at it from a purely like Darwinistic perspective, most of us are, are failed experiments. Um, even if you have your own children, often like ten generations on, they'll all peter out. And what was the point of your life then? If it, and it's not just purely creating offspring. Um, your life still has value even if you don't produce, you know, an infinite number of offspring for an eternal amount of time. Um, actually, linked to, to Paramita's question, um, again, about the future humans, did you find it difficult to create them in a way that makes them feel both fundamentally different from a homo sapiens but still like like uh, a related species in this case so they have something of humanity which I felt in the story and it's actually uh, it's something I praised about your world building in my review uh, and I, I compared it directly to uh, Octavia E. Butler's Xenogenesis trilogy because that is an issue I had with that trilogy that she, she has human beings and she has a a species of alien organisms without spoiling much of anything at one point there there is hybridization that happens between the two and she has characters who are 
supposed to be half this alien species and half human beings, but they did not feel like hybrids to me. They just felt like the aliens. And, and that was an issue for me personally. Whereas with your series, I, I found these future humans really actually felt like almost, but no longer quite human beings. Uh, I, put, I, I think you, you mm. pulled that off very well. So did you, I mean, <laughs> did you find that difficult or just, that just happened seamlessly, organically? I think I probably, <clears throat> I probably leaned on my own neurodiversity there. And I think this is one of the reasons why authors with different ways of processing the world are really interesting to read. But you do have to build a bridge. Um, you do have to, I mean, this is what writing, this is what fiction is about. It's, it's an, a radical mm. act of empathy because you're creating something that's meant for someone else which relies on you being able to at least guess what's going on in their mind. And, but at the same time, you want to offer them something different. You, you want to expand their own mind towards what you can experience. So it's, it's, you're building a bridge with, you know, however many thousands of words that it takes. And I, I think that's where the magic is. But um, yeah, I, exactly how much of that was conscious mm. and how much of it is just me and subconscious um impossible to say but i i do i do think a lot of my creative process comes from my subconscious mm. and there's there's only so much that you can deliberately set out to do mm. i think we've horrified jo jose talking about <laughs> No, what no. What have no. I signed up for? No, not at all. No, not at all. I'm, I'm, I'm listening, and you know, my mind is going off on the different considerations and the different topics you're talking about. About, you know, the banality, the futility of life. You know, what, what's the point of all these things? And I think these are very big questions with um, very different interpretations. And you know, as I, I don't know, I. I'm lucky or unlucky enough to be a parent of two mixed-race boys and th there are things that constantly sort of weigh up in my mind. Um, and every so often I think um, we all need an exercise on, you know, slowing down and appreciating the good things that, that we have going on because it's so easy to get sucked into everything that may not be going in the direction that we want that we lose perspective but I think these are very deep questions like you, you know talking about your future humans I think there was an episode was a South Park where like a human being from the future comes to visit and it's a kind of like a mix of all the different races in on earth so they have this kind of weird sort of person that is a mix you know like quarter Asian quarter black quarter white qu whatever and you know it's, it's sort of like evolved in a in a certain direction I mean I, d I don't know obviously I haven't you, you know your book is here and it'll be picked up in the next few weeks but um, I'm curious to see what that future human species looks in the world you've built I, I was actually really inspired by real research here so within humans there are very well established examples of hybridization between peoples and cultures creating a whole new you know kind of people so the polynesians are a really good example of that 
<clears throat> they've been traced to a group of sailors which were East Asian leaving uh, Taiwan that picked up uh, other people in Melanesia from Papua New Guinea on the way through. And with that combination of two different kinds blending together, you create a whole new people that colonize the Pacific mm. Ocean in, in like a, a couple of hundred years. Um, and if you look at the history of humanity, that happens over and over and over again. And we're only just now getting the, the genetic tools to tease apart that history. But often the oral histories were there. Um, if, if you look carefully enough, pe people understood where they came from. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I, I get that. It's just that it's such a vast, um, yeah, to, to just ponder what it could be and put it down on paper. It could go in so many directions. I'm just curious to see, you know, what and what you've done and how you've done it because I haven't read much sci-fi. I mean, for me, one series that sort of failed is the. I can't remember what it was called, the Terry Pratchett and Stephen Baxter, where they explore the idea of parallel universes and, and so on. But I think it's just kind of, I think it goes over five books, the Long Earth series, that's it. But in there, they just sort of continuously explore the same idea time and time again. Um, so like, you know, bringing a full circle back to the beginning where you said, a book doesn't necessarily need to be 80 or 90,000 words long to explore an idea. Um, so I'm very curious and I'm, you know, when I was looking at your background and the books and you've done, it's like, oh, here is something definitely different from anything else I've come across in a long, long time, which is why after today I, I picked up the first book. It, is, it seems like really sort of fairly unique um, from my knowledge well i mean that brings up a bigger issue about <clears throat> how particularly the self-published market works that when it comes to marketing a product kind of i hate that word product needs to be recognizable like the, the fit with the preconceptions of the audience so like a fantasy book with a sword and a dragon on it you know how many of those are out there but it's kind of the language that you need to reach that particular market and you give them more of what they think they want. I mean, it's the McDonald's model. You want, if you order a, a quarter pounder, you want it to be exactly the same mm. every time that you're hungry for a quarter pounder. And when you have like, I don't know, um, uh, sea urchin sushi <laughs> that nobody's ever tried before and you're trying to convince people to give it a taste, how do you solve that problem? And I mean, I, I think I've run into that a little bit, like even just coming up with the covers was really difficult for me because it's like, well, what's biological science fiction? And I looked around and Children of Time, for example, would be one to look at. And it's a spaceship yeah. and a planet and it's kind of, it's yeah. kind of green tinged. There's no, no spaceships in my story. Yeah. Like I couldn't, I, so, I couldn't use any of those visual tropes. I, 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 I really, really like the covers for the series. Yeah, they are so, so innovative. Even Oryx and Craig doesn't have that. Oryx and Craig by uh, Margaret Atwood would, I don't know whether it was an inspiration or whether it was at the back of your mind that this sort of exists. Uh, I, 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 I don't know about that, Mr. Doyle, but even Oryx and Craig covers, and there have been so many, none of them mm -hmm. capture the, as you said, this true biological 
uh, element. Like when I look at those covers that you have for your series, it, it, it's just some wonderful creativity for me. I love the covers. Yes, they're very distinctive. Well, the 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 only thing I could find that ended up working, and I I did it myself, and I tried lots of different approaches, and what eventually worked, it's like, okay, who is my target audience? in terms of like the bigger size would be people who did high school biology like that's a very common subject that a lot of people do and they end up having some interest in science fiction so i looked at the visual language of diagrams oh, yeah. in science textbooks from biology in high school and there's a there's a kind of cartooniness about yes. reducing things down to the the visual I elements i can totally see that now and yeah yeah and the colors are uh, if you go to now <laughs> Of failing yeah, to draw if, stuff, but I totally see it. Yeah. And yeah, if you if you go to like the late seventies and the early eighties science textbooks, they had mm. a similar color color palette. They were very kind of I don't know bright and pastel, but a little bit creepy at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm I'm glad I did it myself. It took me a year of like trying lots of different approaches before finally something gelled. If I had gone to a professional cover artist and said, I want biological science fiction, it would have taken like 20 versions and I would have had to mm. pay for every damn one of them. Um, and even then I probably wouldn't have ended up with something that I liked. So back to your, to, you know, you said about selling your product and stuff like that. I've asked this question of other authors, like, you have to be, you have to wear your writer's hat, but you also have to wear your salesman hat. So, mm. how do you approach? How do you feel about you know, packing the trunk of your car with your books and going down, going around to book fairs or book festivals or that that sort of stuff? How have you had any experience with that? Have you delved into that world? I I've got a couple of disadvantages. So I live in the middle of nowhere on like a, a continent that's like drifting away from everyone else. Oh no, it's kind of slowly drifting towards Indonesia, but that doesn't really help. Um, and I've also got dairy goats that I have to milk mm. every day. So I haven't been away from the farm for more than a few hours since I came here a decade ago, because I, I, I tell people that I sold my soul for a bucket of milk. <laughs> and um, if, if I ever, if I ever like, you know, in some alternate universe, win some big award, um, Maybe I'll have to take the goats with me to like collect it. <laughs> That'll be a side again. <laughs> um, either that, or I'll like hire a drag queen to like impersonate <laughs> me. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, but even in Australia, like our, we're a very tiny population. We've got a few population centres. Like, there's a couple of comic cons and stuff that I could go to, but the return on investment isn't there. So I'm really relying on the internet. And I really love podcasts, so I think that's that's probably my jam. Like anyone who wants to talk to me on a podcast, I'll be like, I'm there, I'm there. Like I, I don't talk to anyone during the day that actually knows how to make <laughs> words. It's just bleating and, and demands for being patted. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm very 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 happy to talk to people who have similar interests in in odd science fiction, and and in where the world is going as well too. And the other thing with the marketing, I'm very, this is a very long-term project for me. Um, 
And I suspect that interest in this kind of science fiction, this biological science fiction, and a different vision for the future that isn't Star Trek with all the technology you can ever want, or Mad Max, where like everything goes to complete hell and then, you know, the end, um, that, that, that there's a third alternative that is actually plausible and is interesting to explore that, I mean, that I think is going to become more appealing to people as time goes on. And I would refer back to the marketing journey of Lord of the Rings. When it first came out, nobody really knew what to do with it. Like, it was very, very odd. There was no fantasy genre. He, he basically created that with the Lord of the Rings in the modern context. But even still, it wasn't until the 70s when the anti-war and anti-nuclear movement took off among the counterculture and the hippies, and they picked up Lord of the Rings as an embodiment of that message in a fictional way that was compelling and fun to experience. And that's when the book really achieved like its breakout success in the mainstream. Um, I'm Maybe I'm just lazy and I hate marketing and I'm telling myself this story, um, but I'm hopeful that in like another 10 or 20 years, um, people might have more interest in other visions of the future. Fair enough. It's a good point. It's a very good point, definitely. Mm. Um, but on a practical side, I find that I even have to quarantine drafting from editing. So I'll like put aside a month and I do nothing but drafting. Um, like I'll reread the chapter from the day before and like fix a few typos. But um, either it's good enough to continue on, or I delete the whole chapter and draft it again. And I came onto that strategy spontaneously, and I later found out that Heinlein wrote the same way he he basically did very little editing and he trained himself just to produce drafts that were like most of the way there right um mm. think yeah the modern advice and i mean i'm sure it works for other people is that they rewrite and they draft and they draft and every sentence gets picked over like multiple times and i mean i do a fair bit of editing but if the draft isn't if the draft doesn't have the heart to begin um, then editing, there's only so much you can do with editing. And do you go to a professional editor for style, uh, consistency, grammar, anything like that, or is all self? Uh, I'm produced? I'm dirt poor, so like I've, I've I, as an experimental farmer, I I I think my dog made more money selling puppies last year than I did through anything else. So, like, that's, that's, but I'm, I'm happy doing that. Like, it's, it's a voluntary choice. Um, so, my production side budget for this project was very, very low. And the way I got around it, I used loads of critique partners. So, there's sites like mm. critiquematch.com. And I, I'm very, again, tapped into my lack of conscientiousness. And I just shared my drafts with everyone. Like my early crappy drafts, I was just sending them everywhere. I didn't care who, you know, stole my story. And um, I, I took lots of um, kicks to the teeth, which you'd need to be able to take. I think if you're going to improve as a writer, you've got to get over that sensitivity very quickly. Um, and I read like whole novel series and like a line edited the whole thing for people mm. and got feedback on my drafts and like rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. Um, so that was part of my process that I did for time rather than cash. When I got to Our Vitreous Womb, I took book one and I sent it to a, a professional proofreader to get their opinion, to check that I wasn't completely delusional about the quality of the draft. And they came up with a, you know, a range of things that I was 
consistently not doing as well as I could. And then I used that pattern and applied it myself to the other three books to save me a, a, a considerable amount of money. Um, and I will point out too, the beauty of publishing ebook first is that you can publish the ebook and then say, oh, by the way, if you spot any typos and you're in the mood, let me know. And I actually re-uploaded the mm -hmm. files with like, I don't know, maybe a dozen typos in each novella, which for me is tolerable. Like if I read a self-published book and there's, you know, the occasional full stop is missing, I I'm not going to have a meltdown over that. It it's really just, does it break immersion enough? Okay. Thank you very much, guys. But for me, the time zone is, is catching up right now. So I'm, I'm starting to, to <laughs> lag. So uh, thank you very much. Um, Haldane and Mr. I really have enjoyed the conversation, so thank you. I hope you enjoy the series. Um, I'll, I'll I'll let you know. I'm, I'm sure we'll we'll be in touch when, when I'm when I'm through there. Thank you guys. Enjoy Brilliant. the rest of the conversation. But thank I need you. to check Good out. Night. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thank you. Good night. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Good night. Bye. Damn time zones. <laughs> <laughs> what time is it for you, Parmi? It's like three in the morning. Four in the morning? Oh dear. Yes, that's correct. Ten minutes past three. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought about asking a, a silly question, um, if you're up for it. <laughs> uh, since for you it. mentioned uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky, and you, you mentioned Elder Race, which I adored, Children of Time, which mm. I loved as well. Uh, and speaking of Children of Time and yield jumping spiders and octopuses and all those nice critters if uh <clears throat> if you were to uh go with uh, an you know uplifted species concept uh my question my question to you is uh would you go with the uh, mantis shrimp or goats <laughs> oh <laughs> so i've i've had close experiences with both um i i had pet mantis shrimps when i was a kid and i had a tank with a male and a female and i actually saw them mate one morning like i'd just woken up and i saw the male go over and i, I watched them do the deed and the female actually waited until the male shed his skin and then went over and murdered <laughs> him so that she could protect wow. her eggs oh. like she picked the exact moment when he couldn't fight back she knew exactly what she was doing wow um, they are incredibly intelligent species. I, I think they're actually smarter than cephalopods um, in terms of having like a, a cohesive mind. Um, so mantis shrimps would be amazing. And I'm kind of sad that um, the Tchaikovsky books, they mentioned there was uh, an isopod descended yes. species in the sea, but they never really got no. explored. They were just there. Um, that's what the second book should have focused on, not... <laughs> Anyway, let, let, let's, not, I, let's I, not get into that. <laughs> I have two comments to make. Firstly, Steve, how appropriate is this for Spooktober? Because <laughs> I'm spooked <laughs> by that anecdote. And secondly, jumping spiders and mantis shrimps are creepy. No! <laughs> they are not cute. They are creepy. Well, jumping spiders are Goats cute. Goats for the win. Look at Mr. Doyle's website. Look at him holding that lovely goat. <laughs> and, and, and now imagine a mantis shrimp in its place. 
If science can I, not can I hybridize them? Yes. Can I have a goat mantis shrimp sure, hybrid? Go for it. I, I'm, appe- <laughs> I'm appealing. I'm appealing to. I'm appealing to the host to restore order. <laughs> Um, no, I, can I have an alternate answer? Yeah. Yes. So, when you look at the evolution of multicellular species, there's really only two and a half times that it happened. We've got the plants, we've got all of the animals, and then fungi kind of dabbled yeah. with being multicellular, but they never really committed to it. And in, in my story, in Our Vitreous Womb, in book four, there's a foreshadowing of something that's going to happen in the last three books in the series, which I haven't written yet. So they are taking... So when you look at the, um, the types of organisms that have a nucleus, mm. like the pro, the pro... You've got prokaryotes, bacteria, which are very simple, and then way more complex cells when you get to the protists, things like amoebas mm. and euglenas, and there's so many of them, and only a couple of them decided to become multicellular and they've kind of blocked all of the other protists from becoming multicellular after them like those niches are already filled so in the world of alvitria's womb they go right back to the protists and start bringing them through multicellularity so when we get to book seven in the series the very very end which will be written in give me another year or two um we jump millions of years in the future and we get to see one of these multicellular descendants of the Euglenas. And it's a little bit of a nod to Mm. the time machine. So in the time machine, when he, right at the very end, when he goes to the really far future, um, it's mostly about the humanoids that are on the land, but he observes that there's these like tentacles writhing all over the sea. Like the surface of the ocean is covered with these tentacles and he's just like, I'm not going anywhere near that, whatever that thing is. Um, in my fine, my finale finale of the series set millions of years in the future, the whole surface of the ocean is covered with a multicellular superorganism that is descended from the Euglenas in book four. Can you hear my silence screaming? <laughs> They're friendly. Are they colourful They're friendly. like mantis shrimp at least? Uh, I haven't thought about all of the details, but they are sentient. Okay. It's basically like one giant collective brain floating on the ocean. Um, but our, our characters are uplifted amphibians, which are sentient, which are their little, uh, you know, the tricky jobs that you can't do with a giant 50-foot tentacle. <laughs> you need a sentient amphibian to do that job for you. But what about super intelligent <laughs> goats in fantasy? <laughs> uh, there should be more of them. True. Yes. I mean, here's the thing. Like, why are we limited to to riding giant dragons? Like, why isn't there a fantasy series with, like, megafauna goats that people ride around and do battle on? Dragon goats? Like a a megaloceros equivalent to a goat. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that would be brilliant. Like, between the ideas, uh, I remember, Steve, uh, you and uh, Chris, and uh, Robin did an episode with uh, Mr. Tchaikovsky. So between Mr. Tchaikovsky and uh, today, Mr. Doyle, my mind is filled with (laughs) biological possibilities, world building possibilities (laughs) to last me at least, I think, another two or three decades. Well, this is an interesting question I should ask both of you. Um, Our vitreous womb with the lack of technology as we normally think about it, do you think it would appeal to people who normally only read fantasy that they don't like the sci-fi aesthetic 
but they like the fantasy worlds with like elves and orcs. Is it is it adaptable to that kind of audience? Yes. For the writing, yes. And for the characters, yes. Uh for me it's a more tentative yes. Um I think like Parameter said because of the characters and the whole different facets of a quite different society uh and and some of the imagery used as well and the first novella does initially kind of read mm. a bit more like fantasy kind of mm. uh i I'd, mm. I'd say it's yes. less so the case uh with subsequent volumes i think it could work but but mine is is a more is a much more reserved tentative yes than parameters mm. Uh, I was uh, I was going to ask uh, everyone uh, uh, something as readers and if you write then as authors as well. Um, in academia, we have this uh, two types of approaches. I'm generalizing a bit here, but just for the sake of brevity, one is you have an established body of work, and you take that up and you try to think of your own spin on it. and the other one is you look at an established body of work and you think what is missing what are the gaps and you build your research towards that when you are looking for a new book or when you are searching for something to write is there a particular state is it one of these two that you gravitate to or towards or is it more of a spectrum do you know that you like to read something and hence you look for things along those lines or do you sometimes feel okay i've been reading this stuff but there's something missing and what's new and like try to take your reading in totally new directions i'm very much motivated by novelty i i and i know that there's i appreciate that there's other readers out there who will like you know read endless sword and sorcery books that's just their jam that's their place that's their happy place but yeah for me um a, a story either if i'm writing it or reading it i always try and reach into something new that i've never seen before i mean i did a lot of research in, into all of the biological sci-fi that i could find out there and there's not that much of it it's kind of it, it's a bit of a needle in a haystack mm. um just to see what had already been done um because i was convinced it's like how could nobody have done this before and i mean i think that was part of my frustration that finally made me say no i've got to sit down and take the years to write this thing because it's not out there and it should be and i want to read it so i'll have to write it myself uh it's 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 a very moving uh, i'm i'm very excited to uh, hear what the other panelists say but uh, it's a very uh, sort of moving uh, thing that you said this because uh, one of our most uh, famed novelist nobel prize winner uh, tony morrison said that if you cannot find the book that you want to read then you must write it yourself mm. and uh, i i don't know whether that quote was in your subconscious or whether writers and books actually speak to one another through some uh, undefinable magic that we don't know but it, that was just very moving to hear thank you 
Well, it, it's the best kind of motivation, I think. And taking on writing something this big, it's it's a marathon. Like, it's really easy to hit roadblocks where you're like, what's the point of doing this? And, you know, just leave a, a smouldering pile of, of drafts somewhere on your, on your hard drive if you don't delete the whole thing out of disgust. And, yeah, the ability to push through, to, like, really believe that there's a purpose for the finished product that you want to share widely um that's that's the thing you really have to be sure of i think before you commit to doing a project this big uh, steve how about you when you read do you sort of know what you like and do you like to stick to that or do you always want to push the boundaries <laughs> and same with your podcast as well um well those are two different things i think um with my reading, I think it's nice to have variety and nice to, to find something new that, because if I read a lot of, I know some people may disagree, but a lot of fantasy is the same. It's kind of the same. And that's fine. I think it's a, in a way, it's like a comfort food sometimes. Like it's sometimes predictability is comfort. Like you, you buy, so you, like you buy a book and you know what to expect and you still enjoy it. You just, there's not many surprises and sometimes that's okay. Like that's why we listen to the same music for 20 or 30 years because it's, familiar and we feel like you know we know all the words and we can sing in the shower or whatever so it's that's cool like you know but when i think about investing 12 hours into a 800 page book or whatever it is i want something different i want some i want my i want to be pushed in some way i want to be to think about things i want to i want it to be thought-provoking i want it to be surprising i want it to be different in some way so i think with with that i think it's a little different mm. um but with the podcast i try to be um somewhat consistent i think <laughs> it's just because a uh, little it's a little different approach but i think i'd like to be consistent so everyone knows what to expect and um so in that sense yeah great question and uh, how about you muriel uh I reading and also maybe when you d when you think about videos to do mm -hmm. um oh, I, th I think with reading it's a bit of both. I, or, or somewhere in between the two, I, I won't try something just because it sounds completely different. I will try it if it's, it sounds completely different, but in a way that still sounds appealing with like specific ideas or concepts. Uh, I, I do like the idea of, of staying within a, a certain sphere of ideas or templates, but then seeing, may, ho or hopefully encountering better versions of that. Mm. So that's more the, the first, uh, the first category you mentioned with uh, just just putting your own spin and a, hopefully a better spin on something you're already somewhat familiar with than something completely new. Though sometimes, mm. sometimes. I try something new and it's very rewarding. I think, for instance, the first time I read Annihilation hmm. just blew my mind mm. wide open. Uh, but, but then I read it and I wanted more of, of that kind of thing, but not necessarily a clone, but just that kind of weird fiction, basically. And, and then I became a, a big fan of weird fiction for, I mean, some of it in any case. So, so that's a bit of an example, but it's still kind of between the two. So, so that's me as a reader. I think maybe with fantasy, I want to try things that are a bit 
more different than not. And with science fiction, I probably generally want things that kind of fall into um, thematic zones, I guess, or conceptual zones with, with like certain types of premise that I know is something I'm going to enjoy, but then I, I want to see variations on that. Uh, from from a creative standpoint, uh, I guess there are different answers for, for my different creative outlets. Uh, with video making, no, I, I, I like also I like consistency, and I like <laughs> I like to follow a certain template and, and stick with it and execute it as well as I can. I like doing reviews. I mean, that's what I'm passionate about, and I'm not specifically interested in doing too many different kinds of videos though sometimes I will because I don't know, like I just want to with with drawing <laughs> I think with drawing there I tend to be a lot more diverse sometimes I just want to explore a specific theme or, or project uh, sometimes I just want to do things I've, I've, I've always done However, if I were to write, uh, sometimes I think about writing fiction, there I specifically want to do my spin on something I enjoy in fiction, but which I haven't seen a lot of and haven't seen a lot of done well. So, so, but there again, it's a bit the, this in-between the two, right? I, I would want to, to put my own spin on, on something I've seen done, but also add to it because there isn't so much of that specific thing I love. Hmm. So, if if I would if I were to actually one day write fiction, I know exactly what kind of story I want to, to play around with, and so I would do that. So, so I, I hope that answered the question. <laughs> Thank you. I, I look forward to seeing your drafts. <laughs> well, we're, we're... I'll I'll de I'll devour okay, them. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> what about you, Parmita? Um, I'm not, uh, I, I only read, I don't really, uh, I don't think my writing or uh, drawing is much to be discussed about. Uh, reading, I generally try to branch out as much as possible. Uh, after a point, even if a story is uh, very well written, if because I think for the, for the really, some of my favorite authors, they they have branched out. Like even if Agatha Christie, she wrote mysteries, but she's played with a lot of things within that mystery template. And so I always hope that when I'm branching out in fiction, I'll find something new. Uh, it's it's what uh, Mr. Doyle said. It's that it's that feeling of novelty. What is missing? Something is missing, and finding that in unexpected places. And again, I agree with. Uh, Muriel 100% that Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer was a book like that for me. I think I read it four mm. times now and every time it is as perfect mm. as ever. Like, wow. And Steve, I am 100% confident mm. you would love this book. It's 200 pages mm. and it is like I am 100% confident you would love it. It's probably the best book I've seen in terms of building atmosphere. Mm. And I don't know if I could even call it science fiction. I mean, there's a huge focus on biology, but it's almost a mystical it's reverence. It's, 
I mean, it, I mean, it's horror in the best way well, possible. It's it's that sort of existential horror. Well, it's that blend, right? It's it's that strange blend that has been dubbed weird fiction. It kind of mixes different elements. Um, yeah. Mm. Okay, I'll pick it up. <laughs> yes, I didn't even realize what time, how much time had passed. <laughs> the time just flows by. Oh, oh yeah. goodness, we have been going for a while. <laughs> but uh, but before we wrap up, I wanted to ask Paramita, how is your no DNF October going? I am against all odds maintaining it. She is still, fingers crossed. Uh, I cheated a little bit and I started re- rereading A Song of Ice and Fire for the fourth That's time. That's more than a little bit so of cheating, all right? It's <laughs> we, were, we were going down a very dangerous path otherwise. It, so. it, it, was, it was a prescription reread yes. after she um, nearly burnt herself out on yes, Middle March. Yes. Uh, it was necessary because that almost broke her. <laughs> But uh, so far it is being maintained and uh, I'm trying to pitch uh, a book which uh, might have the interest of readers on page chewing forum. We'll see. Mm. Okay. We'll see. (laughs) But a little bit of cheating, but okay. We'll we'll go with it. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) but in the meantime... uh, Aldine, can you tell us where people can find you and your work? Oh, absolutely. Uh, so I have a website, haldanebdoyle.com. So you can see all of my uh, works listed there. There's a few short stories you can check out as well, some of some more humorous uh, material. Uh, you can sign up for my email list there if you want to get regular updates. And there are links to uh, buy my books at Amazon or Kobo if uh, you want a different flavor of Conglomo <laughs> evil. <laughs> I will do self-fulfillment eventually but I I didn't want to take on too many uh, logistical things uh, on on the the self-publishing side of things yeah it seems daunting it it sounds great but when you get into it it's like wow that's a lot of work (laughs) so it, it, mm. it's just lots of sitting down and looking up guides on Google and checking that they're not out of date because it's a moving target. Like advice from two years ago no longer mm. works. So, um, and that's mm. particularly true for marketing, like strategies that worked in the recent past. Basically, if anything works and it gets well known, so many people dive on it that it stops working. So um, yeah, I've my very limited marketing budget, I spent doing very long shot things um the the last thing i did i printed out a bunch of paperbacks and i sent them to prominent mostly scientists who informed my world building and thought process in building it all together and i thought they might actually find it interesting um didn't bother sending um more than a couple to authors because like that's the last person who wants to read another book (laughs) a lot lot of uh, authors do reviews for their authors so yeah, I, I, I took a little bit of a chance there, but yeah, we'll um we'll see if anything comes of it. But yeah, more fun than just pouring money into yeah, Amazon. Yeah, that is some more interesting, yeah, for sure. <laughs> and uh, Muriel, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me either on YouTube or Goodreads under the name The Purple Bookworm with a Y in Worm. And I also 
uh, hang around on the page chewing forums. Awesome. And Paramita. Uh, I can be found on the page chewing forums and I'm there almost every day. <laughs> so easy to find. Indeed. So thanks to all of you for coming by and thanks for Jose who's uh, had to go to bed because it's late for him. But really appreciate all of your time and hope to do it again soon. Lots of I have a feeling we could have gone for hours and hours and hours talking about science fiction. So let's pick up uh, another time and, and uh, let's do it again sometime soon. That's awesome. brilliant. Thanks. For, yeah, thank you. Thank and you so uh, we will talk to everyone soon. <laughs>